For schools to be truly successful, we learn in this conversation that the district does in fact matter. Jeff talks with the well-known educational author and researcher, Karen Chenoweth. Karen is writer-in-residence at the Education Trust. Her latest book, Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement, is what grabbed Jeff's attention. In fact, this conversation is first of a two-part leader chat. If you are an educational leader responsible for supporting schools, these are must-listens. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to today's Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose, and today is going to be a blast. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Number one, our guest is one who is here kind of out of popular demand. We have had people demand and request that we talk with her. And number two, um, as we get into um, our discussion today, I loved this material because if you are an educational leader and you are focused at the system level, let's call it a school district, but you're responsible for school system, then this, this, this book was written deliberately for you. And we're gonna talk about that. So today we're talking with Karen Chenoweth and the topic is districts that succeed. I'm gonna read Karen's bio. I know her um, or of her a lot more than she does me, which is the case with most of our guests. And she even gave me permission to skip the bio, but I, I'm not gonna do that. But I'll make it as brief as possible. Now, Karen Chenoweth, is Writer-in-Residence at the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization. Many people, myself, are aware of the Education Trust. Her latest book is Districts That Succeed, Breaking the Correlation Between Race, Poverty, and Achievement, which is produced by the Harvard Education Press in 2021, which builds on the schools that succeed, how education educators marshal the power of systems for improvement, also produced by Harvard Education Press in 2017, Previous books include It's Being Done in 2007, How It's Being Done in 2009, and co-authored with Christina Theokas, Getting It Done in 2011. Before joining EdTrust, Chenoweth wrote a weekly columns on schools and, the educa and education for the Washington Post. Before that, she was a senior writer um, and ex an executive uh, editor for Black Issues in Higher Education. She's written for such publications as Education Week, American Teacher, American Educator, Capen, Educational Leadership, School Library, uh, School Library Journal, and the Washington Post Magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I would love to invite Karen to our screen. Karen, how are you? And maybe how are you doing, not just now, but how are you doing now compared to maybe a year ago? How have things been? Uh Thank you so much for having me. It's that's a lovely introduction. Um, I'm doing fine. I luckily um, I've been able to uh, isolate from the virus, and my family has also been able to. So we're very very lucky. And um, uh, I miss going to schools and districts, though. I I have not traveled since the pandemic uh, to to go you know talk with educators and so forth. I have done podcasts, so I've been keeping in touch uh, with folks, but it's uh, it's not the same. No, it's not. Now, are you are you are you traveling at all? Have you started to kind of dip your toe back into that? Or um... I well, yesterday, just yesterday, I did do a presentation for the Maryland School Board, State School Board, and um, so that was kind of the first thing I've done. But it was just going thirty miles up to Baltimore for me. Got it. <laughs> Well, you know, it's, it's usually my job to try to mine information and expertise aligned to what we see are the ongoing issues and challenges that, you know, school leaders are facing. Um, and that is definitely the case with having you. But I will say, I don't know if your ears have been burning, but we have had demands to have you on the show. I mean, so number one, we've had members say, you know, you should really talk to Karen Chenoweth based upon this book. I've had one of my facilitators who has been with me for a long time. Her name is Jan Light. And she said, Jeff, we have to talk about this book. And two weeks ago, Kim Marshall, who I believe you probably know, Marshall Memo, 
he and I, he, he did a leader chat with us. Uh, he did a wonderful job, as you might imagine. And I've been following his work since, I don't know, 2002 or something. And um, one thing we started talking about after the show, based upon a conversation we had on our leader chat, he said, it sounds like you really need to talk to Karen Chenoweth. And I said, guess what? We got her. Here she comes in a couple of weeks. So um, just so you know, we're, we're thrilled. I'm really excited to have you. Thank you so much. Well, uh, Kim Marshall and I just reconnected after many years of not being in touch. And um, he very kindly uh, wrote about some articles I've written. And he just read the book. And, and I think Yesterday, yesterday, yesterday's memo, uh, he talked about uh, uh, districts that succeed. So I'm very grateful to him. Maybe for the first time ever, um, after reading his memo that I also got, I, f um, I actually felt like I was ahead. I usually find <laughs> like I'm, I'm trying to catch you up. You did the reading ahead of time. I, I really feel like I was a student this time and did, did a good job. Um, so anyway, so maybe talk to us and just give us some basic perspective on, you know, districts that succeed follows um, schools that succeed. So talk to us about your motivation on moving from one to the next. I find that to be uh, uh, helpful for, for people like myself. So I, I'm very grateful to Ed Trust because they've sent me on this journey, right, that started in 2004, really. Um, and each book that I've written really builds on the last. And you can you can always get a hint of what I'm thinking about at the end of the book. But um, so at the end of It's Being Done, which was the very first book, I said, principles seem kind of important. And um, actually, no, it was, well, never mind. I, I always give a hint. And what happened in schools that succeed, so and I talk about it a bit in, in schools that succeed. I have watched a bunch of schools that were high performing or improving, you know, just doing really well. And the principal gets another job or she, or he retires or, um, uh, and will leave in place a lot of systems to continue the work and improve on the work. And sometimes that work is continued through the next leader or even, you know, you know, two, three, four leaders. But often what happens is a new principal comes in, brings a vision um, and starts disrupting and innovating and the school falls apart. And I have been on many tearful conversations with principals who have watched their life's work just be dismantled by the next principal. And over over the years, what, what I've heard from principals is either um, that they did their work with their district in coordination with their district, supported by their district, or isolated from their district, hoping the district people never come around and never notice them. And the ones that talked about how supportive and strong the district was, those schools tended to stay better. You know, they tended to stay improving and, and high performing. They may take a dip um, because changes in leadership always take some kind of toll, but, um, but they continue on. Um, the ones where the, where the principals had to hide from their districts those school those schools deteriorated very quickly um and so quickly that it's astonishing um so for example um one school that i wrote about and it's being done was m hall stanton elementary in philadelphia this was mm -hmm. one of the lowest performing schools in philadelphia in 2001 so you're just talking really massive underperformance um, and, you know, I went in 2000, by the time I got there, it was, it was, it was pretty, pretty performing pretty well. And I went over a, a few years, Barbara Adderley led enormous improvement. 
And when she left, she uh, left to take a district job in the District of Columbia. And the new prince, she left in place three people who were certified to be principal, who were fully versed in the culture, the system she had put in place. And um, the district instead put in uh, an assistant principal who had put in her time in a recent, you know, in a nearby school. And she immediately dismantled all the systems, the data system, the student support system, the professional development system, every system that had undergirded the improvement of that school. She immediately uh, took them out. The test scores took a nosedive just that year because she, <laughs> even, even though it was kind of mid-year, she, uh, she decided the kids wouldn't have extra, have the, the complete time they were allowed by the state to finish the tests. So she just kind of, you know, it was noon. So she shuffled them off to lunch and didn't think, well, naturally the test scores plummeted. The resumes went out the door, discipline fell apart and um, they closed the school several years later. It was, it, it's a disaster. And this was something that she had, put her heart and soul into. And she, you know, she moved to be closer to family and people, sh we shouldn't have to ask principals to die in place in order to keep <laughs> schools, uh, you know, going. So what has occurred, you know, what I have noticed over, over a period of time is a schools are not long, you know, they're not perpetual motion machines. You can't set them up and let them go run. And uh, there they go. Um, you don't have to worry about them anymore. They need continual leadership and support. And two, if the dis if this, if this districts they sit in are dysfunctional, you can fix schools all you want. They're not, they're just not going to stay fixed. So that what led me to want to really look at districts as a unit as opposed to schools. I still think schools are the unit of improvement, but districts can either support that improvement or undermine that improvement. And too often districts undermine that improvement. So I wanted to look at districts that did not fit that pattern where you could see high, high performance and um, improvement at a district level, not just at a school level. And so um, I was kind of scratching my head because it's a really complicated task. I mean, to find schools, I've you know searched through state data sites and I was going, all right, I, I guess I have to do that again. Um, but Sean Reardon at Stanford University sort of saved me from myself on that. <laughs> and he published his analysis of 10,000 school districts well, it's even more than that, but he, he, he puts on a big scatter plot, 10,000 or more school districts, and they're arrayed by socioeconomics of the students and academic achievement of the, uh, of the students. And, um, and what that is, is the, he combines the grade, the test scores from third through eighth grade, and he equates across the states through NAEP. I mean, I vaguely understand this process. You know, I don't really understand how cars work, but I can drive a car. I don't really understand the, you know, the, the psychometrics and the, you know, all that goes into equating through NAEP. But basically, he's comparing Mar Maryland to NAEP and NAEP to Delaware, and so he is able through the, uh, through that process to compare Maryland to Delaware or whatever states. Um, so he's able to do that. And so I'm able to look, anybody's able to look um, across the nation and find outliers, find interesting districts. He also does other analyses that are really interesting. So I found he did an analysis um, where African-American students are learning at faster rates than white students. And so that led me to uh, look at another set of districts, also learning rate from third grade through eighth grade. So he's done a number of different analyses. Anybody can look at this, by the way, and find your own district if you don't know about this. It's called edopportunity.org. It's public, you know, it's all done. It's all open data. And you can find your district and get a report on your district um, 
of uh, both absolute achievement, uh, gaps in achievement between student groups, uh, learning rates. It's really quite an extraordinary data set. You know, um, as, as a past principal myself, who then, you know, transitioned to these district roles as superintendent, et cetera, um, it spoke to me in that my years as a principal and I was at this particular school for about seven years and I really felt like we did some extraordinary things. It was a collective effort with, you know, the, the teachers and, and our leadership team. Um, and then leaving, um, watching those things that we were so proud of, that we actually took some major risks to do. Um, some may describe as reform efforts, um, shift and leave, um, you, as you described, was, was truly heartbreaking, really, really hard. Um, so I, I can relate to that. And I also believe like the agent of change when it comes to um, the trajectory of lives for kids is actually the teacher. But I also don't believe in the chaos theory that you can put great teachers in a building and assume they're gonna be able to meet their capacity. It takes leadership. Well, knowing that, you take this leadership in this book to not just school level, but to really focus on the concept of systems and structures that impact overall culture, not just for one school. So there's not just like pockets of excellence, but there's an expectation and a system for collective excellence. As you examine these districts, and we'll talk more about them specifically, but Chicago and beyond, what were some of your learning and some of your ahas in the process relative to some of those structures that maybe you wouldn't have assumed going into the writing of it? Well, so um, I'm trying to think what, it, what what the district level version of this aha level, uh, aha moment. But for schools, I will say that my big aha moment, I went to a school and I've never written about uh, this particular school, but it's near, near me. It was back when I was writing a column for the Washington Post. And um, it's a school in Prince George's County. It is a... Um, primarily African-American school, and it had just gotten a, an award from the uh, AP board um, uh, or the college board for its AP program and um, for how many African-American students were taking and passing AP, uh, uh, taking the classes and passing the test. And so I called the principal. I said, you know, I want to know what you're doing. And he said, well, come on over. And this was the aha moment for me. I really thought he was going to talk about how great his principal, his teachers were, how dedicated they were, how prepared they were, what you know, all that stuff. And he did eventually. But the first thing he did was he said, "I'll show you the secret of this." And he walks me into a you know kind of closet office and introduces me to a, a, a an assistant principal who was in charge of the 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 this chart, this big chart on a big whiteboard. And it was the school's master schedule. He said, this is the key to our success. And I was, I did not, that was kind of, it was, it should have been an aha moment. It took me years to really fully understand what he was talking about, that organizing the time and the resources and the, and also the money, but, but organizing time around your goal. Uh, to improve the academic achievement of kids. It took me years really to understand what he meant fully. Um, and that was, you know, over time, I really learned what he meant and what other principals meant by, you know, beliefs mean nothing if you don't know how to build a master schedule. So I don't know, like, I came to the district work with that kind of understanding that, you know, these kinds of fine-grained systems that people don't talk about you know like big ed reform efforts in all the like everything we've heard about ed reform for the last 20 years who talks about master schedules <laughs> nobody right it's it's it's, it's, boring, it's, right? it's it's not as sexy right um it's not right. sexy it's completely not sexy and principles often i mean so he was a very nice guy but the principal of my kids high school Hated doing schedules. He gave he gave it to an assistant principal who, 
and this was public information. Uh, it became public information because it was so awful. He was a drunk. He was an active drunk. Oh. And he messed up the schedule all the time. So that the first two weeks of kids, uh, you know, uh, classes were lining up in front of the counselor's office saying, you know, you put me in algebra two, but I haven't been in algebra one, or you put me in, you know, just the schedules were messed up. Well, if you, if you value students time, if you value teachers time, if you think it makes a difference, what schools do, you don't do that. But I think far too often it's like, yeah, well, we have to have, you know, a schedule, but it's not, it's just a puzzle. You know, it's more of a, an intellectual puzzle rather than this is how, this is how our values are expressed. Yeah. Um, budgets and schedules. That's how, that's how a school values are expressed. And so anyway, that was my big aha moment for schools. And so I came to the district question with that kind of um, mindset. So I don't know that there was as big an aha moment for, for, for the district work as there was for the school work. You know, the, I will say, though, one, one thing that I really appreciated in, in, in the book is that um, as, as you examine these school districts, um, and, and really go into detail, not from, even from a historical perspective, on how school districts have moved from the ones you examined from you know, A to Z. Um, you do boil it down, right, into, of course, it takes leadership, and it takes this, like, this almost a scientific method about doing the work, but this, this concept of systems of support that is described in every narrative that you produce it is they have to do with systems and expectations. So rather than just in a schedule perspective, crossing your fingers and hope, hoping that your schools actually do a good job with their schedules, what does doing a good job actually mean? How do you align the schedule to what you are seeking in terms of results as opposed to you know, the supply and demand process where you know, the community demands and therefore you kind of supply the classes based upon what choices or options you, they want. That right. might not be what's best. That might not align to your overall goals. So it is this systems concept that really, while it may not be as you know sexy to maybe the, the, the listener, to an educator or one who's you know focused on a district, I think it's extremely interesting, and I find it fascinating to, to read about in such detail as you did. So I'm, I'm appreciative. Well, thank you. I I will say maybe one aha moment. I mean. Uh, I don't think it was a surprise for me, but the the clarity with which um, the researchers in Chicago looked at leadership and the role of school leadership and then how districts can can build and support school leadership. I think, you know, that was all new information for me and really interesting and I thought important. The other thing that I think I brought to that conversation about Chicago was how important good data and research is to educators and, um, and how difficult it is to, to really um, sort out what what can make a difference? And I'll give you an example. This, this, I thought this was really interesting. So Elaine Allensworth, who is the director of the University uh, Chicago Consortium on School Research, um, she told she 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 told me this really interesting story, which was that they developed, and probably most superintendents know this, they developed a measure of. Uh, ninth grade on track. You know, they found that they were losing high school students in ninth grade. That's not a big surprise. A lot of educators know sure. that. Um, but what she found as she did the research was that most principals thought that the reason they were losing kids was because they were Ill, either ill-prepared or they were facing some kind of personal crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. The girls got pregnant, the boys uh, 
maybe had ill families and had to go to work, some kind of, you know, personal crisis that couldn't be matched, you know, couldn't be solved within the school, or they were ill prepared. And so they were failing. So, so she said, well, you know, so a lot of principals, what they did was they enrolled kids in an easy ninth grade to try and ease that, ease that transition, give you a study period. Um, we'll make, you know, just the four core classes. Maybe we'll give you a fun class that you'll, that'll keep you engaged, but we'll give you maybe one or two study periods. So, so we're not overloading you. Right. And that, I mean, I, I've seen that. I've seen that in my kids' high school. You know, that's a very standard thing to do. And what she said was, when we actually researched it, you could not predict who would drop out based on their previous performance, i.e. their preparation, or their personal crises, like pregnancy or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so there was a disconnect between the practice and, and what actually existed. And the research was able to determine that, that actually kids were dropping out because they didn't feel they belonged in the school. They were really lost. That transition from middle school to high school is a really difficult one for a lot of kids. And they would feel lost. They didn't feel connected. They didn't feel connected to adults in the building. And even very, very well-prepared kids were dropping out. So that changes what principals do. If they, if they understand the cause of dropouts, they're going to do something different. And so what, what Chicago actually started doing was providing principals with lists of who uh, isn't, who wasn't doing well based on those, um, based on attendance and those uh, two week cycles of, you know, quizzes and exams and tests and grades and assignments and so forth. And, and principals would get real time data and they'd be able to say, who, you know, we're losing Jamal. Uh, what are we, you know, who's going to do what to, to reconnect with Jamal or, you know, whatever, but they were able to then set up systems to address the real problem rather than the fake problem. The fake right. problem was, oh, well, they need an easier schedule to just sort of ease in. And one of the things that I think I've learned over the years is that educators are really good at the first part of the scientific method, right? That you identify a problem, you, you sort of have a sense of the research. I think, you know, serious educators, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not talking about, you know, the principal in Abbott Elementary, right? You know, the serious educators, they have a sense of the research, they put in place a, a solution, and they're very used to doing that. That's, that's what educators do. Doing the rest of the scientific method, that's the hard part, right? Well, did it work? Mm -hmm. You know, let's look at the data. Were we correct in our assumptions? Right. If we if we give kids an easier schedule, are we keeping them? Well, if you actually dig into the data the way the University of Chicago uh, Consortium on School Research did, no, that's not keeping them. In fact, they're now behind forever because they can never get the advanced classes. You've given them such easy classes. You've given them pre-algebra. You know, you've given right. them an easy schedule. They can't catch up. So you've actually really harmed them. And that's not what, what educators meant to do, but that's what they were doing. And so once you've dug into that cycle more, you can actually start saying, oh, well, that didn't work. So like before we go too far down that road, let's fix it. You know, let's, let's get together. Let's get everybody together who touches this kid or touches the kids who are at risk and figure out some other solutions. Can we offer tutoring? And, you know, offer often that's like lunchtime voluntary tutoring. Uh, well, that doesn't work. You know, we offer it and they don't come. Or the only kids who come are the kids who don't really need the help. I mean, this, this is all standard right. stuff. This right. is not, there's no light bulbs really going off. It's all standard stuff. And yet, like this, really working through the problem 
and seeing whether you've solved the problem or not. And if you've solved it, great, keep going, extend it. Um, if you haven't solved it, well, why didn't we solve? You know, what what about that didn't work? Maybe we, you know, maybe it just needs a tweak. Maybe sure. we just had, you know, the wrong study hall or, you know, whatever. But it, by really working the system of the scientific method, you actually can solve, you, you can, you can, catch errors before they do too much harm you can you know tr you can try new things but you you catch whether they uh whether they uh aren't working and you can fix them or you start over again well that totally didn't work we can we can do something different but the the sense of trust that all that requires is enormous because if you say Oh, we put in place a, you know, an open counseling office and it cost a lot of money to do this. And it turned out none of the kids came and it was a waste of money. Um, in a dysfunctional district, a principal, that, that's a mark against a principal. In a functional district, a principal who says, boy, that didn't work. We've got to figure something else out that principle is valued and supported and yeah well let's get let's get a team of folks together and maybe we can figure something else out what what are they doing over at you know x high school because whatever is happening over there that seems to be working they're keeping their kids they're not dropping you know whatever the problem that you're identifying and solving i maybe the aha moment is it's not about programs it's not about some you know, top level outside person saying you should do X. It's really much more about working the working the problem and supporting and, and understanding what, what expertise you have, what expertise you don't have, what more you need, what else, you know, what you have within your building, what you have within your district and what you need from outside the district. I, I can appreciate the concept of, of innovations in education, but I will also agree with you. I, you, can't, you can't solve the complex needs of serving kids through an acronym or some sort of you know, program. This is exactly how we do it, right? It is, it's more complex and nuanced than that. And it does require this level of uh, professionalism and willing to try and fail and admit it and show humility and learn and then adapt and adjust constantly, right? It's a systems issue. And I love that you use Chicago, or the Chicago is so highlighted um, because, of course, you point out as to why. You know, you've already described the research in which you pulled the research, but it's because I, I think it kind of um, blows away some assumptions that some people would make. If you were to say, name a successful school district in this country, uh, the vast majority of people would not say Chicago, right? No. But the data, when you, when you pulled it out and the way you described it in that chapter, I thought was phenomenal. And you mentioned, you know, you can't take Chicago's example and just replicate it because every district is nuanced based upon, you know, their budget, where they are, their politics of the time. But there is this one section I wanted to pull out. I have really thrashed this book. My wife gets so mad at seeing what I do to books. But, um, you know, I highlight, I bend pages and so forth. But when it comes to this example, um, you were talking about the consortium earlier, and the consortium researchers said that schools improve as a result of people working together cooperatively over extended periods of time to develop coherent instructional instruction and build a culture of improvement. What is required? These systems. One, involve families, supportive environment, um, ambitious instruction, effective leaders, and uh, collaborative teachers. And then from that became this focus on leadership. And because leadership clearly touches all of those things. So as you examined Chicago, how would you say the other districts that you uh, delve into in the book, what did you see that they had kind of in common? Uh, Chicago's example is so, it's, it's pristine, it's perfect, I love that chapter. But how did, you know, there's these other great examples too. Um, what did you notice in terms of similarities and connections uh, that led you to some of your, you know, overall summary on the book? 
so first I should say, I highlighted Chicago. I had been looking at Chicago's data for years and wondering why people weren't paying more attention uh, to it. And then Sean Reardon's analysis allowed me to um, focus on it in this book. It's not a high performing district. Let's just, there's a lot of dysfunction still in Chicago. There's a lot of, um, uh, a lot of stuff that isn't going right. And the pandemic has been very hard on Chicago. So I don't want to, I don't want to say, oh, well, everybody should be like Chicago. That's not the point. The point is we've seen enormous reform efforts go into cities um, in terms of money, like just enormous funds of money that have not shown anywhere near the uh, improvement that Chicago has. Uh, so you've seen huge efforts going into New York and it just hasn't seen the, the same kind of um, improvement. And you've seen all kinds of like scattershot efforts in Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles a few years ago. Now, mind you, the pandemic has shown you really need one-to-one -one computers at this point, right? But uh, years ago, uh, they there was an effort to get one-to-one -one computers to students on the grounds that that would help improve student achievement. That alone is not going to help student achievement. Um, it's about the teaching and learning. Uh, that's going to improve student achievement. Computers are a great com uh, communications device, and we see how important they are uh, when students have to be at home. But they're not, they're not actually really great uh, teaching and learning devices. Um, so uh i think i lost the thread i am a bit of a tangentialist so. oh no you're talking about the, the from chicago connections on all these other you know right, systems right, that you right about. so right <laughs> sorry no, no um, that's fine thanks for keeping me on track uh yeah so what i wanted to do was show that improvement and excellence can be in every kind of context because too often, I think educators will say, well, you know, yeah, I know you wrote about um, Chicago, but we're a little district. Uh, so we can't do anything that Chicago does. Yeah, but you could do what Lane does. Lane mm -hmm. is as rural as you can get. And basically what Lane did was its, uh, the, its superintendent said, I want our district, you know, we're, I think we're pretty good, but we're, we don't, look good in the data you know the state doesn't think we're good we're we're actually pretty low performing so i want to be high performing and he searched the data he found a nearby district that was higher performing well very high performing for oklahoma um and uh uh he he said well what are you, you know your kids are doing better than mine what are you doing and that is the through line that mm -hmm. I, I have found in the districts that I have studied, that they are open and willing to learn from other districts. Um, now, Chicago is less willing to learn from other districts, I will say, just because it's so darn big. But th they set up those systems within the district um, to have people learn from uh, from other from their from their peers across the district. Um, and you've got Lane, Oklahoma, you know, saying your kids are doing better than mine. What are you doing? You've got Valley Stream 30 in New York, in uh, suburban New York, Nassau County, really um, a white flight district. So very few white students are there. Very high performing, much more, much higher performing than most of Nassau County. Um, and you've got the dis the the superintendent there who's the president of the he was he's i think he gave up the spot but he was president of the superintendents in nassau county so he's learning across the districts he's getting information from across the districts um he you know he's very connected to the to the um to the profession and he has set up systems within his district so that his teachers, his principals can say, oh, so you solved that problem. You, you're doing that. What are you doing? So he's got that all kinds of systems within. Um, and then you've got uh, 
you know, so one one district I didn't write about, I did a podcast about, which is Lexington, Massachusetts. And one of the, the, uh, the reason I did Lexington, Lexington is at the very, very top of the country. And it, uh, in, in the first analysis that Sean Reardon did, it was the number one in the country. And what I noticed about Lexington was that 10 years before, it wasn't the top of the country. It wasn't even the top of Massachusetts because it had a huge achievement gap. And what's key to Lexington is that the prince, the superintendent there, Paul Ash, and you should have him on. He's, he's, he's a very thoughtful guy. Uh -huh. Um, he, he noticed it a couple of years into his superintendency. I mean, he, he sort of took over a mess. It was a budget mess. It was a staffing mess. There was a whole mess in the district and he was kind of busy doing all that. And at some point he said, well, what, you know, what's going on with our uh, students of color who, who are bussed in from Boston as part of a desegregation pro program. And he was shocked by the numbers. When he looked at the disaggregated numbers, he was just shocked. His parents are sending their kids to us and we're doing this to them? Like, really? <laughs> you know, they're traveling hours on the bus every day and, and we're not helping them succeed? Like, this was a moral imperative to him. And that's the through line. Well, I guess I've said this a couple of times. There's a couple of through lines, but one of them is the belief that all kids can learn mm -hmm. and the understanding that it's the responsibility of the grown-ups to figure out how to do that. This is not easy work. Nobody, like nobody should think this is easy. The, kids don't learn for a whole variety of reasons that have to be addressed. Uh, sometimes it's just, they have trouble learning to read and they need more explicit uh, reading instruction. Sometimes, you know, just that early foundational reading. Sometimes they have you know, a lack of vocabulary and background knowledge. And you have to just really think about how to help build that. Sometimes it's um, that they have some trauma going on at home. So, you know, there's a whole range of reasons that students aren't learning or that are obstacles to kids learning that it is the responsibility of grownups to figure out how to ensure that they learn. Sure. and not let those obstacles get in the way. So that's really the through line. And then it's the systems work that allows that because you can have random acts of education all over the place. As you said, I, you know, the, the idea of islands of excellence is really deeply built into the field of education. Well, we have islands. Of, I, uh, my, my district had a superintendent who would talk about islands of excellence. That's not something to praise that's not something to brag about we have islands of excellence well everybody has islands of excellence every school has a teacher who you right. know is right beating the, beating the drum and every district has not every district but most districts have a school that's you know that's the idea really is to build systems so that excellence is across the system and that's the role of leaders that's the job of leaders, but that's not how we've defined education leadership in the past. And so not everybody is really trained up to do that work and, un and really even understands that that is their work. Um, because well, you, it's a complicated job, even like take all that out. You still have a complicated job. You know, uh, Molly Bensinger Lacey, who's one of my favorite principals who I've written about, you know, she and I one time, we said, take two minutes, write down a list of everything principals are expected to do that don't, that doesn't necessarily even include learning, you know, teaching and learning. It's a huge list. It and is. same thing can be said about superintendents. Um, you know, you can fill your days with important jobs that have to get done that have nothing to do with helping more students learn. Well, and, and that, you know, that's the, that's the challenge, really. And you mentioned one more through line, or at least I heard it. I don't mean to, uh, you know, manipulate what you described, but and that aligns to one thing that we believe, that we believe in our leadership circle, is that leaders, as they're doing their best to focus, become hypervigilant on their local environment. Well, often, 
we don't have the answers and the knowledge and wisdom only within our local environment because we forget that there's a whole world beyond us happening. It's almost like saying to a school, we say, I think really smart leaders say to schools, that's not your school, it's our school. Because we're not a, we're not a, we're not a, a, di a district of schools, we're a school district, and we need to operate as a team, like you would if you're a principal. You want your teachers to operate in teams. Well, so that through line is that also leaders are willing to actually get out of their environment and learn from one another beyond what they can see. And I knew this was going to be my problem when I, when I talked with you is that I, I have created, you know, these, these questions that would take us for hours and hours. So let me, let me ask you this um, as kind of a final to, to focus us at the end here. You, in this book, you talk about these themes, right? Decision-making, vision, expertise, and equity in the context of district systems. Most of what we do in the leadership circle is not talking at, it's actually getting people around the table. So if you and I were around the table with leaders, educational leaders, assistant superintendents, superintendents, people responsible for school districts, what would you want to leave them with, with like your pragmatic advice on things to focus on right now? What would you like, you want them to go home thinking about as we're around the table with them? What would you say? You know, as much as I've just been yakking, I really try and avoid being a consultant. I'm not a consultant. I'm not an, you know, I, I try not to give too much advice. I try and channel the folks I have um, uh, visited with and studied and worked with. Um, I try and channel their wisdom. I try and find experts and then channel their wisdom because most of them, are, don't have the time uh, or even the desire to actually write about what they're doing and, and um, talk about they're they're too busy doing right. to actually um, talk about. So I hesitate to act like a consultant because I haven't done the work. I'm that's, not an educator. I'm a writer. That's so. Um, but it seems to me that what I what I've gleaned is look at your data, get, get the best information you can, even if it's bad news and welcome good information, no matter how bad the news. So, uh, I mean, I just know that the tendency is to kind of hide. Yeah. And I don't blame people for this, like, uh, but, but don't hide behind, manipulations of data that make you look a little better than you really are. Like be honest about it. Be honest with you yourself. Be honest with your folks. Be honest with your teachers. Um, and try and build that that sense of trust where everybody can look at this stuff and go, whoa, um, that doesn't look so good. What are we going to do about it? That helping folks build that sense of professional judgment rather than defensiveness that's about the culture of trust and that um you know so i would say that i building a culture of trust involves being vulnerable yourself um and being able to sort of say i tried that didn't work um you know like but and it goes from that that can pay dividends right down to the teacher level. You know, if teachers feel supported in that kind of way, they can go, you know, I've been teaching Charlotte's Web for 20 years. I keep thinking that the kids are going to know how to use dialogue <laughs> in the course of a narrative and they still don't know how to do it. I, you know, like maybe I need to rethink my lesson. I love Charlotte's Web. You know, every second grade teacher loves Charlotte's yeah, who doesn't Web. Love Charlotte's, Charlotte's Web. Is it really doing what you need to do? <laughs> you know, like, hey. especially when they they read it in first grade and they're going to read it in third grade too. Hey, <laughs> I, I taught fourth and fifth grade and I used it as well. So I went. I was in a district <laughs> where they once they sat everybody down. It was a small district in Mississippi, past Christiane. 
But once they sat everybody down to see how they were all teaching the standards, they realized that Charlotte's Web was being taught in like five grades. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like you're just denying. I love Charlotte's Web too, but like. There's other literature out there. Enough, yeah. <laughs> you can probably get away with once. Well, <laughs> I'm. You, you hit on a, um, a, a, a recent soapbox that I've created, and I have a lot of them over my career, but one thing I've been saying a lot these days to leaders is that we need to move away from the concept of trying to focus on proficiency as leaders and move towards vulnerability. Because that's actually what we're seeing in terms of leadership trends outside of education is the willingness to try, admit, learn and move on that is really hard to do for educational leaders because we expect them to have the answers to own the room because they are actually supporting our most valuable resources which is our kids so we have these expectations that are unrealistic and we need our leaders to be vulnerable to describe this i'm so glad you brought that up and i'm so glad we had you today i mean this is um I, well, thank you this so is, I've been really looking, we've been talking about you, right, behind your back in a good way, waiting for your presence, and this has been phenomenal. And I got through about 60% of what I want to talk to you about, but I, um, I, I will appreciate your time and say thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate this. It, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Yeah. And your book, by the way, is not preachy or giving advice, even though I know you were uncomfortable with that last question. Right, what you describe is what you saw and what you learned and what the research says. So, right, for the listener, I mean, you know, you can look at my marked up version. I really appreciate that. It's, it's what you have learned through the process that, that comes through loud and clear. So I just want you to know that, that um, you didn't come across like a consultant writing me a book. <laughs> Good. Okay. That was my aim. <laughs> okay. Thank Karen, you so th much. Thank you so much, Karen. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that was, um, that was I, I, it's true. I have so many questions uh, I could have kept going. Um, it was really, really, really uh, fun to talk with Karen, and I know you appreciated it just as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the noble work that you do as educators, as leaders. Be well.